Uh, you can be seated and uh, locate Isaiah 60 and uh, children to children's church, Isaiah 60. I would encourage you to read uh, Isaiah 60 in its entirety um, often because it is quite an exciting and, and hope-filled passage um, as Isaiah sees the renewal of all things as the glory of the Lord is revealed, which is why he begins, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see, and flow together, and thine heart shall fear, and be enlarged. Because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee, the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee, the multitudes of camels shall cover thee, the camels of Midian and Ephah, and they shall come from Sheba and bring gold and incense. They shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee, the rams of Naboth and the minister to thee, and they shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? Surely the isle shall wait for me, and the ship of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, Unto the name of the Lord thy God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut uh, by day nor night, that men may come unto thee, uh, that, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought, for the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree the pine tree, the box together to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons also of them that uh, afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee and all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet and they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency, 
a joy of many generations. Thou shalt also suck the milk of the Gentiles, and shalt suck the breast of kings, and thou shalt know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. For brass I will bring gold, and for iron I will bring silver, and for wood, brass, and stones, iron, I will also make thy officers peace and thine exactors righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders. But thou shalt call thy walls salvation and thy gates praise. The sun shall no more be light by day, neither uh, for brightness shall the moon Give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be given unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. The sun shall no more go down, neither shall the moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. Thy people also shall be all righteousness. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. The word of the Lord, and it is certainly for our good. As I said, it's an, it's an exciting and it's a hopeful passage, nuanced, pushing forward into the visit of the Magi to the child Jesus as the nations that once oppressed Israel bring, their sons bring silver and gold to them. It is an entirely, thoroughly, completely passage of hope, but one that probably deserves a daily teaching over about a month to get all of it. And so as often in a sermon, we have given an allotted amount of time. And so we're going to pull from this the best we can today, what I think is the central theme that the Lord would have us to know. This glory, this joy that is being introduced is in the opening line, Arise, shine, for thy light has come. But I like the paraphrase that says, Get out of bed, Jerusalem. Wake up, put your face in the sunlight. I, I don't know about you, I can't sleep late anymore. I used to be a champion sleeper, rarely rising before dawn, because it was good to get out of bed slowly after the sun has risen. I grew up thinking that was the best time to get out of bed, 10 or 11 in the morning after the sun had risen. But note, the shout to arise is given when it's still dark. And the emphasis is not on a quiet, gentle nudge like one might give when it's still dark outside and you're trying to wake somebody up and you just kind of gently, hey, it's time to wake up. No, the emphasis is on like a trumpet blowing a loud voice that shoots people out of bed. Arise, 
to get out of bed, to wake up, and when you do that, to immediately put your face into the sunlight of the glory of the Lord. When our son Zach was, I don't know, eight or nine, ten, somewhere around there, I bought him a bugle. Three days later, his mom hit the bugle. We haven't found the bugle since. Um, This passage is like that. It's a loud sound. But again, that jolting shout is given given in a time of darkness. And not just any kind of darkness, it's a deep darkness. Translated in the King James, it's a gross darkness. You know, if the warmth of the morning light is pouring into the room and in the kitchen you hear somebody saying, hey, wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey, and you smell the bacon, and you smell the freshly baked cinnamon rolls, it's a lot easier to get out of bed. But what about those seasons when there's no eggs and bacon? What about those times when it's bitter like Naomi? We, we learned last week in chapter 1, she renames herself. She calls herself Mara, which means bitterness. What about when sadness or sickness cling to us, when we face uh, unfavorable circumstances, either of our own making or by divine providence? How can we put our faces to the sun when the shadows seem to be falling all around us? This is the tension of the passage. Because Isaiah is not telling people to arise because the threat of captivity is past, that, that it's been removed. He's telling them to get out of bed. He's telling them to wake up and to put their faces towards the sun even as the darkness deepens around them so deep it it is a gross darkness the kind of darkness that comes to a nation that rejected and forsook God and the kind of darkness that comes in our lives when we go through seasons where we reject God and we don't listen to what he has to say we don't follow his word and suddenly the darkness surrounds us so, so why would Isaiah tell them to get out of bed when it's so dark and so depressing and the threat of captivity looms over them? Well, I would make this suggestion. Is not an important act of faith to take the first step? To, to just pull the covers back enough and slide your feet out and just dare to touch the floor. Is not the first step of faith the most important step of faith? You see, we like to think that faith is big leaps, maybe down the road, but in times of darkness, in times of despair, the most important step of faith is the one you take that appears to be no faith at all just a little a little step because when you do that you begin then to orient yourself towards the hope that then comes with the promise that the glory of the Lord has risen on you 
And, and this is what's important to understand about verse 1 and verse number 2. Isaiah is speaking both in the present tense and in uh, the future tense. So he has both in mind as he reminds Israel that the glory of God is still present although gross darkness surrounds them. And he is saying to them that if they will get out of bed and they will look and orient themselves to the glory of the Lord, what they will begin to see is that in the future God is going to unleash upon them a renewal unlike any renewal that they have ever seen, that they have ever experienced. That's what happens and unfolds from verse number 2 all the way down to the beginning of verse number 22, that big section that we read. What Isaiah envisions for a people heading into captivity is God's ultimate glory that is going to come to them. But, but he doesn't say to them, oh, you can stay in bed until that happens. He says, no. Right now, while the darkness surrounds you, get your feet out from underneath the covers, get them on the floor, and get out of bed and look through the darkness and see the glory of the Lord shining upon you. You see, this is why all creation ultimately will be able to sing and why so much of Isaiah's prophecy is filled with songs of rejoicing. It is because in times of great darkness, God will still work to bring great light, to bring the renewal that he promises to bring. And you know, I, I realize that this tension is felt in our lives as well. And we've talked about this since we've opened up the book of Isaiah. That, that the Israelites being taken into, into captivity creates a tension for us as we look at a region and we look at a nation that has, has not just rejected God, but has done so with impunity. So where is the hope to be found? Especially, you know, when the statistics tell us that along with our brothers and sisters from, from Quebec, that our region as well is one of the least reached regions with the gospel in all of North America. That there are fewer Christians existing in the Northeast and up into Quebec than anywhere else in, in North America. You know, that, that bit of glum news is part of the larger picture of post-Christian North America. And reading another research report this week, uh, the nuns, as they are called, and that is not N-U-N-S, not those nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, the ones with no religious affiliation, now make up a whopping 28% of Americans. Just 40 years ago in the 1980s, that number was 7%. And surveys taken in the 1980s, you know, what 90% or so of people would identify 
be glad to identify with a church, whatever church that might have been. Now, 28% of Americans, that's probably a higher uh, percentage, and we should probably understand that the majority of them actually are where we live. Say, I, I, have, I have, not only do I not have a religious affiliation, but I have no interest in a religious affiliation. I mean, how do we find hope in times of great darkness? And as I've tried to illustrate before, the church to most people is like a museum they simply don't want to visit. And I can tell you from 34 years of ministry, the number of phone calls I once received on a regular basis, hey, can we use your church for a wedding or can you perform our wedding? I now get zero calls. The number of funerals that I would have to make time for in my weekly schedule from people that are unchurched, didn't have a church, and, you know, uh, Todd down at Kilmer's would call me, and he'd say, hey, Ken, you know, family needs a, a funeral service. They don't have a church. Do you mind coming? Absolutely. Uh, myself and other pastors all experienced this. We'd have to make time in our schedules knowing that was going to happen now hardly ever. I mean, people not only don't want to get married, but they want to, you know, they want to die without any influence or voice of the church in their lives whatsoever. Times of gross darkness. And we, we say, well, that's distressing. And it is distressing. And, and we might ask, you know, well, then is the church to be relegated to the dustbin of history? But before we ask that question, we'd have to ask, well, was Israel relegated to the dustbin of history? And the answer, of course, is no, it wasn't. And neither will we be. And then we have to say, well, how, how does this work? How do we get out of times of great darkness? When will we ever see this glorious light that Isaiah is talking about? And we have to be remember that God, God takes what seems impossible, and he doesn't just make it possible. He makes it overwhelmingly victorious. You see, we like to think about possibilities. God likes to think about overwhelming victory. Romans 8, who will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one can do that. We are ultimately victorious. See, so, I, you know, I, I ask, you know, are, are, you are you ready to get out of bed as a church? Are you ready to get out of bed and, and smell the eggs and bacon this morning? Are you ready to rise and see that the glory of the Lord has risen upon us? And, and if you are, then I would encourage you to look at the last nine words. As Again, I'm using the King James translation, so it shows up as nine words. At the end of verse number 22, you say, how is it going to work? It is going to work because I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. You see, without those nine words, there's no hope. It's fanciful dreams. It's like, oh, Isaiah, you're just trying to, you know, pump the people up so that they can, you know, have a good day or whatever. No. Isaiah says, all of this that is promised, and the, really the only reason to get out of bed in the morning is because I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. You know, and of course, we have to do a little bit of work with the word time. Uh, 
because we tend to quantify time in terms of what we can accomplish in the time allotted, right? In the time allotted, right? Football, some of you will be watching football. I'll be watching football later today. And you get to the end of the half and, uh, right, what does it have? It has a two-minute warning. And if you set your, your clock and let it go when that two-minute warning starts, you find out it's about 25 minutes, <laughs> you know, before the two-minute warning is over. I see wives grimacing right now. Like, oh, yeah, that's really true. But that's how we work. How many periods are there in hockey? We got all these Canadians in here. Like, there's three periods of hockey, right? Or, or, or you might think about musicians that learn to keep a beat within the measures by using a metronome. Tick, 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 right? Or you think about a nurse taking your pulse, right? They're looking at their watch. I hope they're not bored. You know, I hope that they're trying to figure out what's going on, you know, with, with, your, with your pulse. Because that's how we mark time. But that is not how God marks time. And you see, and that's part of our problem with God. Our problem with God often is that time with God is different than time with us. You see, God doesn't work with something starting and something ending. 10.30, you know, well, I can't say 11.30 today, but it'll probably be at 11.45, you know, we're done. That's not how God works. The eternal God, time has no end, just as time had no beginning. And that's our problem with God, because it was, well, God, why don't you get on with your work? Why don't you finish your work? Why don't you get this? And why do we have to live in the pain and the suffering? Why do we have to live in the darkness? Why can't everybody just come to church and want to learn about, about Jesus? And so this idea of an eternal God who doesn't mark time as we mark time comes across as rather cold and indifferent. You, you know what it's like, right, when you're in a hurry and you know you have to be somewhere and somebody looks at you and says, you got all the time in the world. You're like, well, no, I don't. Oh, just relax, it'll be okay. You can be late, don't worry about it. And you're like, your friends are like, like the old cartoon, off your head goes, you know. And this is our great challenge. But, but this is not an impersonal God who says, I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. So this word hasten is a qualifier that personalizes and gives a personal and purposeful warmth with God because the word hasten doesn't just mean rush because it's not a word at all that means rush. It's a word that means enjoyment. It, it's a word that means the kind of enjoyment that you experience through planning and and through preparation, when our, when our Jesse was very little, maybe, I don't know, four or five years old, we were visiting our family in Florida, and we said, Jesse, we're taking you to the Disney World tomorrow. It was very exciting. Get to see Mickey Mouse. And I kid you not, a kid that never got out of bed early was standing in our bedroom pre-dawn, dressed and ready to go. And he was going to hasten the day to get to Disney World. Uh, because of the enjoyment. He was thinking about that all night long, probably. Like, get out of bed. we got to get going, you know? And we're like, hey, we're not leaving yet, you know? We're sleeping a little while longer. Um, this is, do, do, you ha- do you have room in your life, in your understanding of God, have you made room for a God who is utterly joyous 
filled with gladness in the planning and purposes that he is working out in his world. I mean, that's wild, isn't it? I mean, that's just crazy. Because we all know the tension and the anxiety of planning things or having to be somewhere or hoping this is done or that's oh I forgot this. And now we're anxious and now we're stressed out because that's how we, we live. But can you imagine, have you, do you have room, do you have in your understanding of God who is so filled with joy in the plans and purposes and in the time that is allotted that is going to take that he isn't up in heaven like wringing his hands over this stuff but he is filled with joy and that joy is overflowing to us today to such an extent that Isaiah says, hey, get out of bed and look at the glorious God who filled with joy is hastening on his work and then what other word personalizes this and makes it so purposeful is it is in his time. Who is the him whom God has found great pleasure as he prepares Israel to see and share his glory? Well, if you read chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah, which you should do twice a month, you should read those chapters regularly, you would know that Isaiah has identified him as the servant, as God's servant. And then as you read the four gospels, you will begin to understand that the servant is no one other than Jesus Christ, God's faithful servant, Jesus, the one through whom God has prepared and set the world forth to be drawn to him, the world to be drawn to him. You see, God didn't say to Israel, hey, you know, get her done, get out there and win the world. What God said to Israel is, I got it done through my servant, my savior, Jesus Christ. And as one commentator pictures it, Jesus is like a magnet that everything that is drawn to, the nations come to him for healing and for wholeness. And that is the only reason why we can say in times of gross darkness, wakey, wakey. What? Smell the eggs and bakey. Get out of bed. The glory of the Lord is shining upon us today because God has hastened in the time of our Savior a kind of redemption to come where even God's enemies come to serve him. When the sons of the enemies of God bring their frankincense and myrrh and gold and worship at the feet of the king of the Jews who is indeed the king of the world. Can it be discouraging? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, it can be. But did you catch in the reading that Miss Rhonda gave? (laughs) Miss Rhonda gave that Ruth said as she meets Boaz, Oh, sir, such grace, such kindness. I, I don't deserve it. You've touched my heart, treated me like one of your own, and I don't even belong here. Do you, I mean, do you understand that we don't belong here? We don't belong here. We could be like, you know, all the nuns out there. Just roaming around, bumping into people, hoping to find some meaning in life. We don't belong here. But we met someone who showed us kindness and grace. 
our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps it was stories like Ruth or passages like Isaiah 60 that helped free Charles Wesley to write, Arise, my soul. Arise, my soul. Arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Is that, is that true of you? Is your name written on the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, like I dare you, get your feet out of the covers and touch the floor. Take the first step of faith and believe that even though the darkness surrounds us, that the glory of the Lord has risen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So go ahead, say it with me. Wakey, wakey, come and eat the bakey, bakey. Say, I just don't want to smell it now. I want to come and eat it. I want to get out of bed. I'm going to turn my face to see the glory of God and feast on the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Jesus that the glory of God has been revealed to, to we sinners in need of grace. The gross darkness has overtaken. But when the Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed in all of its splendor. And we will be able to say with Isaiah, the sun shall no more be our light by day, neither brightness shall the moon give at night, but the Lord shall be unto us an everlasting glory, and thy God, thy glory. Amen. Father, we give you thanks for your word. And now as we come to the table to feast, in this time of great feasting, let us remember we don't belong here. But only by your grace are we here today. And I'd invite you to spend just a few moments in quietness, preparing your hearts for the table, ready to receive it in all of its joy. Let's be quiet before the Lord.